This is Dr. Saba Maruf, and you are listening to Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on Podcast Detroit. of old, the legends and the myths, Achilles and his gold, Achilles and his gifts, Spider-Man's control, and Batman with his fist, and clearly I don't see myself upon that list, but she said, where'd you wanna go, how much you wanna risk, I'm not looking for somebody with some superhuman gifts, some superhero, some fairy tale bliss, just something I can turn to, somebody I can kiss, I want something just like this, Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on the Podcast Detroit Network. I'm your host, Dr. Saba Maruf, and I'm super excited to share another hopefully inspirational and impactful conversation with you today. Um, here on this show, we aim to showcase change makers and their stories in an effort to motivate you to be the change you wish to see in your community. Here with me today is my co-host, Calvin Moore. Hey, everybody. Hey, Calvin. How are you doing? I'm I'm good. Uh, I'm at the end of uh, finals week. And, and you so had a busy week with Channel 4. And I, I was on Channel 4 and so WDIV cool. Channel 4 in Detroit. And uh, then I had my own podcast on Wednesday night and neglected to uh, click record. <gasps> so I had oh, a fantastic no, really? two-hour conversation that didn't get recorded. Uh, so that was uh, slightly That's annoying. And uh, now I'm working on three finals papers uh, because I've been building a ha- not building a house, putting together a house for the last week. And uh, yeah, yeah, oh, I'm wow. okay, You're but busy. I'm, sli- I'm slightly stressed right now. Oh, I'm man. good. I'm sorry I'm good. that happened. That's no, it's always... all right. This is this is ni- a nice. <laughs> hey, hey, Jess, have you pressed record? Uh, okay okay good all right just want to make sure that this is actually recording hey you know what Um, you're not the first one to do that i know you're not going to be the last but that sucks because it's yeah when when i've been told those stories i'm like idiots how do you not click record (laughs) and then here i am with a fantastic conversation oh man and your show because you have yeah i mean a whole yeah. panel roundtable discussion. Yeah, oh, and it's one of our better conversations be. too. Anyhow, but you're on Channel Four this week, so I there's was that. on Channel yeah. Four. There's <laughs> that. There's that. It's led to some exposure for my company, so that's cool. But yeah, I, I've had a stressful week, but I'll, I'll make it out alive. I'm sure. Wow. Yeah, it's been pretty busy here too. But I will say that Fridays, like th- this time, is something that um, I'm, you know, definitely begin- like look forward to, and um, it's a nice way to kind of round out the week. So thank you guys. Thanks for being here. And um, Jess is here as well. Our Hello. sound engineer who's making sure that we're recording. Yep. Thank you, Jess, for that. Yep. You're Just want to check again. <laughs> we are recording? Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I'm super excited today. Um, we have two um, very special guests with us today. And I'm, I'm really excited because as I introduce you, um, you know, the audience will kind of get an idea. But, um, you know, I think you guys have actually met before. But yeah. these are two friends um, from, you know, different kind of places. But... This idea kind of came to me because I was um, 
uh, and I'll be introducing her, Rania Shabib, who's a friend of mine, has been doing work um, with foster care. Um, and then another new friend who's um, actually my uh, sister and brother-in-law's neighbor and very good friend. Um, and I was like, hey, what if we had both of them on on the same show? I mean, and she, you know, specializes and focuses on adoption law. Um, and you both have started your own nonprofits, which we'll talk about. So I thought, hey, this will be really neat to have both of you on. So welcome, Rania and Chantel. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having us on. Oh, I'm so excited. And you're both here to talk about foster care and adoption. Um, so just some brief intros, um, starting with Chantel. Um, she's a lawyer, and her area of focus is adoption law. Or she's a few areas. Adoption law, adult and minor guardianship, and conserver- conservatorships. It's an extra syllable I wasn't I expecting. Didn't was a, I didn't even know that was a word. Got me Googling stuff this morning. All right. Um, commercial litigation, um, mental health law, and disability law. And we've talked about that. Um, she studied law at Syracuse University, graduating in 2007 with a certification in family law and social policy. And before um, that, she received her Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from DePaul in Chicago with a concentration in juvenile justice. Very interesting and cool. She attended Illinois State University's graduate school, where she studied sociology and subsequently taught college-level sociology in Illinois and North Carolina for nearly a decade. And that's something we have in common. Yes. Both were in North Carolina. Um, she and works me for. Too. And, oh, I'm sorry. I always forget, Calvin. That's we had so a whole funny. conversation before. She was in, this, in the city adjacent to where I live. That so is so cool. crazy. There's always a Michigan North Carolina connection. There is. Or, or Michigan so Atlanta. Oh, Atlanta. Detroit Atlanta. Michigan, North, North Carolina. Carolina. Yeah. So. so Chantel currently works for a Stark Reagan law firm in Troy, where she, in Michigan, where she specializes in adoption law and often works with families on a pro bono basis. And that's really kind of what interested in me in talking to you and sharing your story. And um, we're really going to – we'll talk to you about how you realized that there was a huge gap in legal assistance for family members who are raising other family members, most often grandparents. I definitely see that a lot in my practice um, as a child psychiatrist so many times – Kids are coming in with their grandparents um, that are functioning as their parents. And this really led to her work in establishing her own nonprofit um, called Mimi's Kids. So congratulations. You just received you. your 501c3 earlier this week, you were saying? I did Monday at 12 o'clock. I opened the mail, wow. and there it was. <clears throat> All right. Awesome. Yeah. So excited. And you also have your own personal story of adoption, too. I'm hoping that we'll get into. I do. <laughs> I do, indeed. So welcome. Thank you so much for being here and Thank taking you. time out. And then Rania Shabib um, is also a friend of mine and very talented um, individual, lives in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan with her husband and three children, and she's a refugee foster parent and the co-founder of the Muslim Foster Care Association. And she's worked in the field of education as a teacher, administrator, and school board member, and has completed diversity and inclusion training through the Bloomfield Hills School District and currently serves on the district's global education team. And she has a Bachelor's of Science in Biology Education and Master's in Public Health from the University of South Florida. And she also does very strong advocacy work for foster care and also has her own personal journey um, with foster care, as we kind of mentioned. So thanks for being here. And you've had a lot of, I mean, you've been speaking a lot in different venues. Is this your first podcast? Oh, no, you did one. I remember you told me you did one like a month ago. Oh, good. Okay. So you're warmed up. 
But this one is special because it's with you and you're my friend. Oh, thank you. No, really, I'm super excited. I was like, oh, I definitely have to have Rania on. And then. Wait, are you saying when you were on that other podcast because Uh-oh. you were your friend, you were like, oh, I'm just going to half ass this? No, I wouldn't gonna... say that I didn't give it 100%. But this Calvin was going to invite you too. Yeah, now you're a, friends I got a too. podcast. And now you're too. a friend too, Calvin. Okay, all right. Yes, all right. So welcome to both of you again. Thank you. And I'm really excited to share your personal stories and just, um, you know, just I think it's really interesting, these kind of parallel interests and even kind of Mm -hmm. lives in these personal journeys and stories and how you both have now kind of helped um, start these nonprofit Mm -hmm. organizations. So I'm looking forward to an awesome discussion. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, yeah, I just kind of wanted to start out with that, just kind of sharing how you know, from each of you, how you kind of embarked on this journey. And, you know, we're talking about adoption and foster care. And of Mm -hmm. course, they're similar in many ways, but there's differences too. And I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, But just kind of how that started for each of you. Um, Do you want to go ahead? Sure. (laughs) Uh, So I moved here from North Carolina um, via Rhode Island. My husband was in the Marine Corps for 30 years and retired. Um, Semper Fi. Um, And so we moved here. I knew that I was interested in doing adoption law, but I didn't have any experience here. When I was in North Carolina, I worked for legal aid um, and primarily had been doing tax law, which was – not really my cup of tea, but a wonderful way to work for legal aid. And so I went to the Oakland County Adoption Services and they asked them if there were any families that needed pro bono assistance. And through them, uh, at the time when they were still able to give referrals, they gave me a few families that I was able to help. Um, they, I was out out in the open, uh, told them I wasn't really certain what I was doing. Um, but if they trusted me, I would work really, really hard to, you know, to be a good lawyer for them. And over the course of two and a half years, um, there was family after family. And so I think I counted yesterday, we've gone through five trials. Now in the last two and a half years, we, uh, finished a trial this week. So hopefully in the next month, there will be two more adoptions going through, Um, But it became readily apparent that, one, I was an anomaly. Uh, When I was going into court to file the paperwork, nobody really knew what to do with me because apparently Mm. there aren't private attorneys really doing Mm. a lot of grandparent and family member adoptions. Uh, Primarily, they see these adoptions happening through DHS um, when a family has had CPS called into the home for whatever reason, a lot of times, you know, mental health issues, substance abuse issues, um, which often lead to there being some sort of criminal behavior that's going to bring the kids out of the home. Um, And when they go through that system, they have the benefit of having not only a timeline for permanency, but also the assistance through the Department of Human Services and attorneys, especially when it comes to long-term placement, if there needs to be a termination of parental rights and then a subsequent placement, they have that through, you know, what we can call the system. I think everybody just kind of short-terms it. Um, For my families, what happened was, was there was a moment of clarity with these families. So the biological parents or parent knew that for some reason they couldn't take care of these children or the intervening family members said, hey, let me take the kids now while you get 
you know, your world in place. And because of that, they've not been touched by the system. And there is probably a whole other podcast that you could do with grandparents and family members about having to advocate for the services that um, are often presented to families that go through DHS and CPS and and the advocacy that these families have to go through to get services that maybe aren't so readily available. And one of these are legal services. Um, For many of these families, they need to have a formal guardianship, often for two years, to have standing to adopt the children. So what I've been doing the last two years is either backtracking, getting the guardianship so the grandparents have legal standing. They're, you know, the legal seen in the court as the legal caretakers of the children, which means they can go to the hospital with the children. They can take them to mm-hmm. psychiatrist appointments. They can go to sign them up for school without needing the intervention of the biological parents. Mm-hmm. And then two years down the road, if it seems like permanency in the family member grandparent's home is the way that will keep stability, then I'm able to go forward and, and move forward for the adoptions. What we were talking about before is, you know, this case that I had this week I've had for two years, probably 50 to 100 hours. And if you look at a typical attorney's billable rate, you know, you're looking at something perhaps as low as $75 an hour, perhaps as high as over $300 an hour, and you multiply that by 100 hours. And most of these families are not in a position that they can get this assistance. In addition to that, many of the legal services that are provided through maybe a legal aid, um, they are often granted out of being able to do this sort of assistance because of the type of funding that they receive. And so these families are finding themselves in a fairly significant gap where they don't have the financial means to be able to provide permanency. Um, It's not being provided to them by some sort of government assistance. Um, and there's nowhere to turn in a traditional legal aid sense. Um, so that's after two and a half years and through the kindness of the law firm where I work, who um, I think one judge along the way laughed that I was no longer a rainmaker for the law firm. I was a drain maker <laughs> um, because I was providing so many free services. Um, they also can't hate you for that. They right? can't. Like, they oh, can't. Oh, helping I people have, adopt children. I, oh, yes, you horrible person. I know. I've right. held up the karma right. for the entire law firm <laughs> solidly. I've got everybody. Um but it it really has been um, a surprising turn to my legal career. I knew that mm-hmm. I always wanted to do – I knew that I loved working for legal aid and being able to provide services to people who maybe couldn't afford them. Otherwise, I think just nationwide that's a big gap. There are a lot of people who should be getting legal services that can't afford. But this one in particular, especially when you're talking about children who have often gone through – sometimes significant trauma, um, to have this stability and the feeling that they are where they are, um, even if they're maintaining a relationship with their parents, that they know that they have somewhere, they're not going to be moved again, they're not going to be taken away from the family, um, really is is a, a neat piece that I've um, just absolutely loved helping people with. And so the nonprofit hopefully will be able to be a way to do that to a wider audience. We'll start with Oakland County and then move out 
from there, county by county. And what's the name of the nonprofit? It's Mimi's Kids. Okay. And Mimi was my mom. She died four years ago of ovarian cancer. Mm. And so my sister has started a charitable foundation, uh, Mimi's Gift. And so she provides uh, intervening services, often for women with ovarian cancer. Uh, We realized my parents could afford in-home health care, going to MD Anderson in Texas to get a second opinion, that sort of thing. And so she's helping fund some of that gap. So there's Mimi's kids with you and Mimi's Mimi's gift with your sister. Mimi's gift with my sister. And so she inspired. She was a woman who... Um, never forgot a friend and always was there to provide service for people. And, and clearly, she, clearly lives on through her yeah, kids. Yeah, um, we are wow. trying to fill her shoes <laughs> as best we can. Seems like you're so, doing a good job. Thanks. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. Too. And we'll talk more about it, I'm sure. Rania, how about you? Okay, mm. what's my story? <laughs> um, a few years back, I kind of became aware that there was a need for licensed foster homes and specifically licensed Muslim foster homes. And I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that it took me this long to realize that there was a need because honestly, I wasn't really aware that there was a need prior. But as soon as I knew that there was a need, um, it became like I, ha- I had to do something. I knew I had to do something. So my husband and I started to have some conversations, you know, what can we do? And I, I knew I had to be a foster parent. So we started, um, the licensing process and it took us, they say it takes three to six months. It took us three months. We were really like motivated to get through it. And we chose to go through, um, Samaritas because they are only, I love them. I actually had Sean DeFore on my show a few weeks ago. He's a vice president. Yeah, I think I love them services. more. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you love them more. Talk about good that, stuff. Yeah, you absolutely, you absolutely have right to love them more than I do. He was just a guest on my show. You have a vested interest in truly loving no, them. No, I mean, they've really been wonderful. Um, we chose Samaritas as our licensing agency because they license for both domestic and refugee foster care. And that way we felt that, you know, in the future, you know, if we want to experience both, then we can do that with our licensing. Um, So even before our license came in the mail, you know, once we were approved by the state, before it even came in the mail, um, they asked us to welcome our our foster daughter to our home. Um, She's originally from Somalia, and she was living with another family initially, um, but she had been requesting a Muslim family. So we were the first Muslim family in Michigan to be licensed for refugee foster care, specifically refugee. And so she, um, we've been foster parents now for about a year and a half. And it's been a really wonderful experience. There is definitely challenges to it. And as we were going through our experience, um, we realized we needed support. And we're looking for the support in the community And people really meant well, and the organizations that were already existing meant well, but we weren't really able to find that support that we really needed to get us through this. And what we found to be the most beneficial was speaking to other foster families that had gone through the journey, and specifically other Muslim foster families, because they can relate to, you know, being in the Muslim community and what that ex- that specific experience is like. 
So I became good friends with Samina Zahor, who mm-hmm. you know, and um, she's a Muslim domestic foster parent. And she really became my support. And she became the person that I would call when I was going through difficulties. And I mean, because we have to realize it's a it's a very big change for the family. And so you kind of need somebody to talk you through things, support you, um, help guide you. So Samina and I became very close through this experience, and we realized that we needed to start an organization to be able to support the foster families and support the children in the system and raise awareness and help. And what was already existing that we saw were organizations were able to raise a little bit of awareness and were able to kind of encourage people to become licensed, but there was no long-term support for the foster families or for the foster kids. And that was something that we really needed. And we felt that we had a different perspective because we had that firsthand experience. We were foster parents ourselves. So that's where we at. We started the Muslim Foster Care Association. And it's really been wonderful. Um, It's really been wonderful. We've realized that the local agencies are very excited to work with us because they realize that we have an in into the Muslim community that they haven't been able to kind of um, tap into previously. And I mean, just today before coming here to the podcast, um, we were I prepared uh, Muslim Foster Care Association prepared for welcome packages. Anytime a Muslim child enters the foster care system, we try to welcome them with a welcome package that has some kind of uh, faith-based items, such as like a prayer rug, a Quran, and also other items such as like a, a Target gift card so they can go and maybe buy some personal items that they need. And so Samaritas <laughs> came down and they picked up these items because um, these were for some refugee foster kids. And um, so that was one thing that, you know, just this morning happened. So again, we're here to hopefully support the families and support the kids through through the journey. Do you actually, this kind of question came up, I was assuming that um, it's, okay, so Muslim families that have opened their home. Um, how about Muslim kids that are not placed in a Muslim family? So the majority of the Muslim foster kids are with um, families of other faiths. And um, yes, they're, you know, we, we love connecting with them, communicating with them, helping them in whatever way we can. Um, one of the things that we've, Muslim Foster Care Association has been able to do is we've been able to host um, support groups in some of the local mosques. And it's facilitated through Samaritas, um, but the local mosques support um, host the, the support groups. And to be honest with you, the vast majority of the people, the foster parents that attend are people of you know, faiths other than the Islamic mm-hmm. faith. Um, usually when I go, even though it's at a mosque, I'm usually the only Muslim mm-hmm. <laughs> attending. So, wow. but that, you know, that's okay. Um, it's, it's very beneficial, I think, for me as a foster parent and hopefully for the other families that attend. I think in a sense, I mean, uh, Samaritas used to be a Lutheran family Lutheran, services. Yeah. Right. And so now, yes. they're, now they're Samaritas, great organization finding out more and more about them, and it's great to actually meet someone who's... Yeah. It's kind of cool to meet someone from the organization. It's probably even cooler to meet someone who's um, got a relationship and, and direct benefit from from yeah. said organization. Um, but I think this kind of, in a way, because I'm, I'm Christian, so I come from mm-hmm. a Christian background, and you know we've got our pet issues within the Christian church, especially when it gets out into you know the, the, the mass culture. Oh, you only care about abortion and homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And 
this issue of adoption comes up and you find that people of faith by and large adopt more than people who have no faith whatsoever. And that's nothing against Mm -hmm. people who have no faith whatsoever. But I find that um, just through interactions that I've had with people, you do find that uh, people of faith tend to tend to adopt. But I never thought about uh, the, the idea of people of a particular faith adopting or fostering someone of another faith. And so, I mean, my, my thought is around race. So I've always wondered about, oh, you know, what do you do when you're a white parent and you're adopting black kids or you're fostering black kids? How do you, you know, f- how do you shore up their culture yeah, without well, being part of their culture? I'll tell you so my, kind of interesting my foster daughter's from Africa. Okay. Um, well, yeah, you said Somalia. Yeah, right. she's so that, Somalia. That's where it is, so. people. Yeah. <laughs> Africa know, is a right. continent, just so you know. It's not a country. <laughs> right, so continue. And what the what the agencies do is they try their best to match the kids with families um, that are most similar, that are the best match for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for, you know, when a Muslim child, for example, comes into the system and if they request a Muslim home, the agencies will try to make that effort to place them with Muslim families. But a lot of times that's just not the reality. The families aren't available. Um, But there are many people, there are, um, I know Muslim foster parents that foster children of other faiths as well. And there are, you know, people that are of other faiths that foster Muslim children. So it's really what we try to do is um, educate the foster parents of, you know, what they can expect having a Muslim child in their home, maybe what the child is already familiar with of where they're where they're coming from. Um, For example, Ramadan and um, the Holy Month of Ramadan is coming up in about a week. Mm -hmm. And this can be a really difficult time for um, a youth that is fasting in a home trying to observe Ramadan in a home where the family is not observing Ramadan. And so one of the things we do is we're hosting a Ramadan um, iftar and even uh, a kind of a breaking their fast uh, dinner, if you will, at one of the local mosques so that the children can have that experience of still being able to connect with their with their Muslim community. And of course, um, the families are invited as well. So it's, you know, it's the, the foster child and their family are are invited. How old are these um, children, generally speaking? So the refugee foster kids typically come um, as older teenagers. Okay. Um, many times they've gone through quite a journey before coming to the States, and so they tend to be older. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. I was thinking, like, you know, a, a three-year-old might not be, right. you know, as upset that they don't get to, uh, right. you know, have all of the right. traditions. Yeah. Okay, so it makes yeah. sense but that there's, a teenager... Right, so there's the there's domestic foster care and there's refugee foster care. Okay. The refugee foster kids tend to be um, teenagers, domestic, all ages. Okay. And I think, Rania, that's kind of... I know I've heard you speak on this, and um, before this association, you were very active with a group of um, other people from the community and friends um, on speaking to this kind of lack of intri- – I mean, and this is kind of how you introduce the topic, but just that there weren't a lot of parents that were um, – el- or not eligible, but they were a fa- foster that signed up or gone through the process to be foster yeah. parents. And so there were – for example, there were a lot of Muslim children that needed that, but right. we didn't have places right, right. place You them. know, I mean, it's – I would say this last couple of years, a lot of awareness has been raised within our communities. Um it's a process of that kind of filters people out. I think as people mm-hmm. learn more about what it means to be a foster parent, they maybe their anxiety kind of builds up and they um, realize that it is a change and that there is some risk involved because you don't necessarily know 
everything about the child that you're welcoming to your home. Um, and so a lot of people are not willing to to <laughs> welcome that level of risk and and mm-hmm. change their um, their lifestyle and their family dynamics. And I, I understand, you know, I can't I can't say anything about that. Um, but so a lot of awareness has been raised, but we there there have been some families that have become licensed through um, the work that we've done, which is wonderful. Um, but in in looking at the bigger picture, I'm just happy that we're raising awareness and now that people are understanding what this means and what it entails. And hopefully, even if they don't become licensed themselves, can still um, support the process and support for the sure. families and the kids doing it. Chantal, sure. I have a question for you. And, and we, we talked about this offline before the show, um, just because you were talking about the advocacy that you do, the type of advocacy mm-hmm. that you do, um, gen- by and large, generally seems to be seeing this uptick in grandparents uh, getting parental rights, which I guess the basic question is like, do the grandparents become the parents when that happens? I, I don't know that happens. But um, within the African-American community, grandparents have always been part of the culture, whether it is uh, from the church. Like, oh, men run the church. It's like, no. If you go to like a black church, like the women, like the grandmother, the motherboard runs everything, right? Uh, the, the big hats and all that kind of stuff. But within the African-American home, the the grandmother has always kind of been integral. But even more so in, in recent years, like for instance, I keep, I've, again, I was telling you before, show, before the show, I've heard this more and more about grandparents taking care of kids. And I've always thought, oh, that's something that we've always done. My, grand, my, my grandmother, my mother uh, is – currently taking care of all four of my sister's kids. All four of my sister's kids. Um, my sister's fully capable of taking care of kids. I don't know why my mom's taking care of all four of them, but she got all four of them, right? Um, but it's it's something where, you know, my mom has to take, you know, take one of our nieces, uh, one of my nieces, sorry, one of her grandkids, one of my nieces, uh, to a psychiatrist. And apparently she's, she's seven or eight and she's stuck at age four mentally. Um, because of some trauma that's happened to her. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think about mm-hmm. what my mom had to go through to be able to even take her to a psychologist. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about the the rise of, of grandparents uh, taking over uh, the parental rights uh, across cultures? Sure. And, um, and what are some of the particular challenges that grandparents raising – grandchildren have to face specifically. Sure. And maybe some of this is conjecture because I'm not, I've not had the experience, but I certainly talk a lot to my clients mm-hmm. about their experiences. Um, so as far as, you know, racial or ethnic makeup for the family members, I'd say it's across the board. I don't have, um, you know, one group that's overshadowing the other in how many grandparents or family members are are raising. It really has been um, as diverse as our population. Okay. Um, And this is generally not grandparents taking care of kids because something tragically happened to mom and dad, like a car accident. Right. It's like – Right. Mom and dad are still – you know, or at least one of the parents is still still alive. Um, On the whole, I can say – Mental health issues are a significant piece. Substance abuse issues Mm -hmm. especially. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I'm projecting forward a few years, I think, especially with heroin. um, This Mm -hmm. is going to become more and more prevalent. 
Um, I think uh, Wait, some is, of is it. Is heroin a big deal again? I'm, it is indeed. Oh, yeah. Okay. It All is right. epidemic proportions. So, okay. It is. So, um, you know, we're starting to see the ripple effects of that in probate court with the guardianships and you're seeing more and more – I've been seeing personally more and more guardianships come through. Um, I think our mental health system, just to be on my soapbox a little bit, in uh, the U.S. is, you know, is far outweighed by the mental health and substance abuse problems that are out there. Um, so the intervention that maybe good care – could be and would allow these families to go back and be whole again mm-hmm. uh, just isn't there, you know, nor are the financial resources to be able to pay for that out of pocket. Um, as far as help that the grandparents are getting or the services, uh, I was just doing a little cursory research before we started, and the AARP has a site or a portion of their website that's speaking to grandparents. Hmm. I know that one of the grandmothers that I represented, she said that she's part of a grandparents group in Pontiac, and they have 70 fa- family members there that are raising you know, their grandchildren. Some are in the system. Some are not. Um, the process – to become the guardian and then the quasi-parent through adoption, I think um, I'm glad to hear there are grandparents groups. From my experience, I'm watching, especially when it comes to the grandparents, grandparents who are emotionally coming to terms with something tragic, you know, whether it be substance abuse, mental health issues, you know, their children are in jail. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're dealing with the grief of the loss of that child and probably whatever expectations they had for those children, as well as coming to terms with raising, being a parent again again, and a parent for a very different generation. Mm -hmm. You know, if I look at my parents or my dad now, he's 73 and who I was at 10 w- is very different than 10-year-olds now mm-hmm. and the challenges and we were talking about activity levels mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. the podcast and you know it just feels more hectic it is a very different cell and I feel even behind the curve trying to keep ahead of technology and concerns for myself and my children and and I can't even imagine doing it again in Mm -hmm. 40 years. And so, Mm -hmm. and then dealing with parents, you know, who often are heartbroken at the loss of their children, especially if we go to trial through termination of parental rights, those parents, even ones who haven't been present in their children's lives for many years, who are there in court, still are sobbing at the end of that because it is – you know, for them, it's the end of their ability to say that I'm raising this child, and you know, who knows the emotional portion of that. Is there is there a stigma at all for for grandparents? Because I look at my mom, and I'm like, Mom, Dad, you're in your you're in your sixties. Like my yeah. mom and dad is 60, uh, 63 and sixty two respectively. They share, they share the same birthday, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> um, but. Uh, my mom is always so tired and she's like, I I feel older. I can't do what I used to do. And I think I had a great childhood. 
My mom, because I was raised at a time when my mom could keep up with me. Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, she had four kids and now she's got four kids again. Wow. But she's in her 60s. She was in her 20s when she had me yeah. and, and the rest of my siblings. And so I'm going, is there a stigma for grandparents adopting kids under the auspices of, look, I mean, grandparents who are signing up for raising their grandchildren are essentially, you know, signing their grandchildren up for losing a parent in a way because, you know, they're, they're adults. So my, my expectation is I'm going to be dealing with my mom and dad's funeral within the next 10 to 15 years. Right. That's just the practical reality of the situation. So is there any, any stigma in the legal sense or in the legal world for grandparents adopting uh, their grandchildren, even though it might be great? Sure. They might be better than than the parents. Sure. Is that a is, is there a stigma at all? You know, I think for the family members that I'm representing, not as much because it is outside of a system that would be perhaps looking at two or three different placements mm-hmm. for the children and saying, mm-hmm. okay, for the best yeah. interest of the children, where is this? I can say it was part of one case through a more traditional adoption where you did have foster parents who were closer to my parents' age that that were approved for adoption. Um, you know, it's interesting, though. One, one of um, uh, families that I was talking to, you know, just in passing – um, was talking about how this actually is their part of a permanency plan so that, you know, considering adoption is what they see as a permanency plan because then they have a say in where the children go after they do pass, where if they're just in a guardianship, the yeah. potential for the children going into, you know, maybe – the unknown of foster care or back to parents that maybe the grandparents aren't sure about, um, that even though their eyes wide open, that, you know, the children will have to go somewhere eventually someday. But this is, you know, you know, maybe contrary to the way that we would think is part of that permanency plan. I think also there's a reason, I mean, I'm thinking of some personal stories and kids that I see and the grandparents oftentimes are the figures that caregivers that can provide stability and structure and even with the change i mean life has changed so much since they were parents themselves um i mean i'm thinking one particular case that she sees that he does better this one boy that i see he does better when he's with grandma and she's the one that brings him into appointments um and my, and in this case it's some substance issue substance abuse issues and some mental health issues that are like not being optimally or I mean sometimes it's not even treatment it's that you're not sometimes people are not they don't want the treatment right. you know they're also adults too and so they have the right to refuse treatment of course or not go for it um, there's something to be said I think maybe maybe quote unquote that they're the old school kind of upbringing that it was kind of you know more structured more um you know, laying the groundwork, discipline, things like that, but also in a loving way. And sometimes the grandparents have more patience than the parents do in some cases. But also for you, Chantel, if you can share a little bit about your personal story too, if that's okay. (laughs) I I want to ask you before if it was okay, but you know, you also have a personal story very much too. I do. And it's interesting because I am under the guise of the law, not my stepson's mother in any sense of the word. And so he was adopted by my husband and his ex-wife from Kazakhstan. Um, But since he turned seven, I have been pretty much the only, you know, game in town as far as a mom is concerned. 
And hopefully she's not listening to the podcast. <laughs> Hi. Um, <laughs> try not to condemn anybody. Um, so I have seen firsthand the challenges of not having a legal foothold in a child's yes. world. Um, he was adopted at almost three. Uh, the Russian adoption system has been seen to have some issues along the way. Um, in that the going theory, at least for when he was there, was that we're not going to hold these children, we're not going to bond with them, because then they mm -hmm. wouldn't bond with their adoptive families. Well, you know, there's a whole lot of science and mm -hmm. a whole lot of sociology that says otherwise. And so he has what they now generally term reactive attachment disorder, which is – you know, if you look at the bubble chart of the characteristics, there are many. Um, many of them are quite severe. Um, and so part of my journey with him since he was seven was through three emergency hospitalizations and now uh, one year-long hospitalization and now he's in a therapeutic boarding school. And thankfully, I'm a lawyer. Um, thankfully, my husband is on board for all of the treatment and we've been able to circumvent some of the potholes that would come without my having legal status. But along the way, he deployed for a year and I had Jake and my mother-in-law helped um, because she had the legal portion of that. But as he was needing help along that way, I couldn't sign mm -hmm. for certain things with him. I had a power of attorney that, you know, school to a certain extent would listen to me. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as the medical piece of that, uh, there was a limit to my advocacy for him. Mm -hmm. And that informs me not only because a lot of these kids have had trauma, you know, that I that I see through the adoptions that I've done, some maybe not as significant as Jake has had. Um, but the the level of trauma, the uh, the way that I can talk to the potential adoptive family members is that here is my experience and here is mm -hmm. the limit of what I've been able to do. Um, I was not in a position. He'll turn 18 next year. I'm not in a position where I can sign, you know, for the paperwork to start the ball rolling for him to get Social Security. Granted, he'll be an adult at 18. He'll have to do a portion of that. Um, for there have been critical moments where had there not been somebody else present that could advocate for him, mm -hmm. I would not have been able to get him what he needs. And so – for my prospective adoptive families, I can say, look, you know, there are benefits and burdens to having full control over this child and their life and the responsibility that you're taking. But part of the benefit is, is that if you know that you're the person in this child's life that's going to be advocating for them, you will have full range of options through adoption, where for me, that has been hindered to a certain extent. You know, and my husband and I have gone for back and forth about me asking to adopt Jake and, you know, what we're going to do with that. Um, you know, and, and when you have another parent where perhaps there isn't quite the traumatic issues that there have been with some of these other families that I deal with, you worry about cutting that bond. Mm -hmm. You know, so for us, it's been uh, a little bit of a journey, but in in some ways much the same because 
I am a stand-in for, you know, maybe a set of moms at this point. Um, and that presents its its own unique place um, and probably much more analogous to the grandparents than it would be to somebody adopting maybe out of the foster care system just because it is such a close hold um, and it is family transferring to family at that point. And, and Rania, what about yourself? I mean, you... Yeah, I was just going to add to that. Even as a foster parent, you know, you you want to treat the child as your own, but then there are instances where you are reminded yes. that you don't have the guardianship of the child. Um, so whether it's medical care, traveling, um, there are many things that you have to um, seek permission for. Um, so it's it's kind of like this in limbo state. Um, so it, it can be tricky. It can be tricky. And it's, yeah, you're, you're reminded of it often that you don't have guardianship. So tell us about your, your own personal story and, and kind of the inspiration. I mean, you've talked a little bit about um, what your organization does. Um, and so thank you for that, by the way, because I don't think people know that these kinds yeah. of things exist and they need yeah. to know that these kinds of things exist. But what about your own personal story? Because I'm, I'm hearing this, this sense, I'm getting this sense that personal stories are kind of what fuel yes. Um, yes. the desire to do this because <laughs> you noticed gaps mm-hmm. in Definitely, your own life. Yeah. And, you know, this would have been a lot easier if this had been around. Mm-hmm. Nobody's doing it. I guess I'll do it myself. Right. So so tell us your own personal story. Uh, on, on so all we this. knew starting an organization would be a lot of work, which I'm sure you've experienced <laughs> yes. as well. And so you, you really or for me at least, we, we really didn't want to do this unless there really was that need. And so we did feel that there definitely was a need. Um, my personal story, um, <laughs> it's hard to give some examples because, you know, to to protect the privacy of, Absolutely. of you know, the kids. Um, there's definitely some challenges, I think, um, for us. We were one of the very first families in our community to do this, and the reaction of our families and extended families and community members um, was very eye-opening to us. Um, I think we naively thought that everybody thinks like us and everybody, (laughs) and then we're reminded, oh, wait a minute, not everybody is of the same mindset. Um, And that's okay. And that's where we raise awareness. And that's where we're very open about our experience um, to encourage other people. Um, My children had some difficulty adjusting. I have three birth children. They Mm -hmm. had a difficult time adjusting. Um, And even for my foster daughter to come into the community and, you know, that's, that's, difficult. It's not easy. It's There's a lot of changes that foster kids go through. And um, for her as well, it's a new country, new language, new culture. You know, the kids have all experienced different degrees of trauma. And so there's a, there's a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of time to kind of settle into the new environment and this new lifestyle. Um, but I will also say that my husband and I are are pretty um, firm in saying that we see ourselves being lifetime foster parents, and it's something that we want to continue to do. So I say that to say that you know it's it has challenges, but it's still a very rewarding experience, and it's something that I, I do encourage other people to do. Okay, so I'm just going to put all my cards on the table. Yeah, here. go most, for most it. Of my <laughs> most of my understanding of uh, of foster care is 
from pop culture, and it's always that movie where the kid was transient and they ended up in terrible <laughs> foster situations. But, I mean, the yeah. difference I know between adoption and, and foster care, at least as much as I've been influenced, is adoption is permanent and foster is temporary. And I get this sense here that there's a little bit more um, – a little bit more – permanence in what you're talking about, but there's a lack of legal so, permanence. So it's a little bit different with refugee foster kids specifically. Um, the parental rights have never been terminated of the birth parents, so mm. they cannot legally be adopted. Um, okay. Maybe after they turn 21 and, you know, they're adults maybe at that point. But the parental rights, it's, it's different than domestic foster care. Um, if the judge rules that the parental birth parents' rights are terminated, then the child becomes eligible for adoption. But for the refugee foster kids, um, they stay in the system until they age out. Oh, okay. yeah, they can stay with the same family. Ideally, I mean, ideally, that's yes, okay. they stay with the same family. Okay. So when you said that there, there are reminders every day that you're not their parent, yeah, that there are these legal challenges, yeah, and um, that is something that I'm thinking of myself in the situation. That's something that you hide from them, right? Um, like no. you never make them feel. You never make them feel like you're not actually part of our family. Oh no, no, no! You don't do that. Okay, uh, no, right. I hope I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there. I mean, she's my foster daughter is older. She's a teenager, and she is very aware that the state has guardianship of her. Um, for example, traveling. If we decide that we want to take a weekend trip to Chicago and it's a spur of the moment trip, well, we need to have the approval from the judge saying it's okay for her to leave Michigan. Oh, wow. So, okay. It's almost like you're on house arrest. You know, it's like, rest. okay, well, we can. I mean, once you um, make the request, it's fairly easy for the request to be approved. Because we planned out. I wonder if I can you're waiting for that, Because I just say, yeah, hey, impromptu, we're going to Chicago this weekend. Yeah, well, I will say um, my daughter, but- the caseworkers, you know, no matter how great they are, there is a lot of turnover. Okay. Um, oh, they yes. are overwhelmed with the work that they're doing. Um, I'm very grateful for them, but they are very overwhelmed. And so it's it's kind of left to their, you know, when when do they have the time to submit that request? So in the few minutes we have left, um, I wish we could go on and on. But I guess for both of you. a good you, conversation. I know. It's like, like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> we're only at the very beginning of it. I know. Um, but I guess, you know, for both of you, how would you say that these ex- experiences have changed you? And I'll start with you, Chantel. Oh, geez. Sorry. Um, that's a big one. <laughs> it's a big one. In a nutshell. It is a big one. Um, it has been a reminder of how much help – I received growing up and how much those experiences and that's a whole, you know, maybe three hour conversation, but I've been sober for 28 years and I got a lot of help 28 years ago. Congratulations. Today. Thank you. Yeah, congratulations. Yes. yes, it's good. Eyes wide open. Mm-hmm. Um, but that experience and the assistance that I got has informed my life through this experience about – keeping your eyes open for places where you can help um, because where you're looking may not be where you're needed. So this, this, mm. I didn't go into this looking mm. to do this sort of work, mm-hmm. but you know, I kept my eyes open. So wow. that was that. And you, Rania? That's beautiful. Um, 
I've always had a really strong conviction for doing community service and helping others. And I think I always thought that I was very global minded. <laughs> and I think that this experience has realized that I, you know, has been eye opening and made me realize that there's still more for me to learn. And, and we need to be even more um, globally connected with our world. And it's a wow. small world because, yes. boy, you know, the interconnections even today, not yes. only socially, <laughs> but but through our work. Right. Um, really, right. really. And it's very wonderful. easy to kind of resort to going back to your little mm-hmm. bubble. Yes. Um, and it's much more rewarding and fulfilling to experience outside of the bubble. Yes. Wow. Well, thank you both so much for being here. And like I said, we could, I mean... You have such rich experiences and I can, t- I mean, very wise from those experiences. You have so many lessons that I'm sure you could impart. Oh my gosh. But I don't know that I feel to- wise. I <laughs> kind of feel like, oh, oh, oh. I like coming here. I like your compliments, Salah. <laughs> oh, I'm not just saying that. Week. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, that's what I mean I love about doing this is that we, you know, again, it's like a open door policy and we're going to. I mean, I'd love to have both of you back, um, you know, talking, maybe continuing this conversation or for other things. Um, it definitely so needs a part two. Being, definitely yeah, part I know. Two. This yeah. was a big conversation and <laughs> yeah. it's a lot to get in an hour. But I hope that um, the listeners kind of get kind of a taste of, you know, how important this work is and how if, um, you know, I mean, just inspired to kind of um, make a change or take a step. Fill the gap. Exactly. Yeah. Fill there's, the gap. Yes. Yeah. There's so many ways that we can be active and we can help. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for our listeners. And please um, uh, subscribe to our podcast. And we're on SoundCloud. Um, you can find us on the Podcast Detroit website. Look under shows under Unsung Heroes. Like our Facebook page. And share. That's the biggest thing is we'd love to gain more listeners and um, really kind of want to reach a wide variety of of people. Mm-hmm. So okay. thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Phone, new names and numbers that I don't know. I dress to places like Abbey Road, take turns tonight.